we had it, uh, two positions uh, which Ghazali uh, opposes, and he, we were actually discussing the second position here. And that's the position that things proceed necessarily from God, and that they proceed that way necessarily, right? They cannot be other than that, according to a fixed order. That fixed order for the philosopher was understood in terms of the essences of things, so that we have it that uh, things are what they are because they have certain essences, and it follows from these essences that certain behavior uh, necessarily follows under certain circumstances. That's to say that these different things uh, interact with each other necessarily in the ways that they do because of the kinds of things that they are. So that as long as fire is fire and cotton is cotton, again, the cotton cannot possibly touch the fire without burning and the example that uh, we were using. Okay, now this for Ghazali is a problem because it entails that it seems to entail that Ibrahim cannot have survived the fire that the uh, Mushrikeen put him into without God having turned the fire into non-fire, something other than fire, or turning the flesh of Ibrahim uh, into something other than flesh. Right, and Ghazali then says that uh, we do not concede that the principles do not act by choice and that God does not act voluntarily. Then he claims to have refuted them on this in the discussion on the world's creation, which is in the first discussion of the book. But I think it'd be good to actually mention it briefly. What was the nature of Ghazali's refutation, which he claims to have given against them? As we see, the, the philosopher believed that the cosmos comes from God in the way that it does necessarily, uh, not by a kind of a choice or will on his part. It sort of follows from God's existence that the cosmos exists. Uh, it follows from God's self-knowledge, technically, if we get into that. But uh, actually, the universe is the only way that it can be. And uh, basically, the argument is that it is the most perfect world possible, that uh, God, as the, most per as the perfect being, the only thing that can proceed from him is the most perfect possible being the world. Right, so the world has to be, uh, and everything that actually exists in the world, right, on their view, is as it necessarily must be in order to play its role in the overarching order, which for them is the most perfect order. So if anything were other than it is, then the world would be less orderly, and it's impossible that a less orderly thing uh, emerge from God than than the not because God's perfect and he would, he would never be able to uh, create something which is less than perfect yeah so for them the world as it is is the only possible way the world could be basically Ghazali argues in favor of a, a, a kind of a, a divine attribute of will by pointing out features of the cosmos that could have been different than they are and without sacrificing the optimality of the order, right? Without sacrificing the, let's say, the perfection of the order. So for example, he says uh, the heavenly bodies, right? Thars and the, the, the sun and the moon and the planets, you know, rotate uh, across the sky in, in certain directions. 
each one in a specific direction. Now, if they were all to rotate in exactly the opposite direction, then the order of the heavens would be just as perfect as it is. And we would be able to measure time just in, in just the same way as we are now. Uh, there's no possible reason that could be given why it should be one way rather than the other. Then Ghazali says that that means that God has the capacity to select between options which are equal, uh, equally valuable, right, uh, with regard to any possible aim or objective. In this case, if the objective is to establish the most perfect order, either of these two options would be just as good. But one of them has to be the case. The heavenly bodies have to turn in some direction. And so uh, God has the capacity to determine that the world be uh, one of those ways, to realize one of those equal options. And that's for him what God's will actually consists in. That's for him what will is. And uh, this is his proof that there is will. That's to say basically that this is not the, there's not only one most perfect possible world, but there may be more than one, and there actually are more than one equally perfect possibilities, but for one to exist, one rather than another has to exist, and therefore God chooses, because the only way that you can get one from another equally optimal option is by choice, because choice just is whatever it is that determines one from among equal options. That was the, the bit on will, right? So where it comes in here, the fact that God creates things by will for him entails that cotton not burning on contact with fire is, is possible. But it's possible in certain uh, situations where such a thing not happening would actually somehow uh, optimize or would be demanded or required in order for the order to be perfect. So this is the idea with regard to miracles. For example, water usually just sits in the place, right, where it, where it sits. That's how God creates it all the time in an orderly fashion until uh, the occasion arises where a prophetic miracle is required in order to achieve the goal of an optimal order. And that case, you know, um, Musa, and raise his hands and the Red Sea will, will, will part or the sea would part and the water would come up in that situation. That That's usually not the case, uh, but it actually is possible uh, because it, the world doesn't follow necessarily from God as it is, but it follows through his will. This is where the philosopher respond in a sort of horrified way. It comes down to this. If one denies that the effects follow necessarily from their causes and relates them to the will of the Creator, where his will does not have a specific designated course, but one that can vary and change in kind, as they put it, then nothing is as it is necessarily. Okay? Everything just is contingently. So remember these terms, right? The necessary is that which must be as it is. The contingent, or what we're going to call as the possible here, is that which may or may not be the case. Or it might not be the case, but it could be. 
So if nothing is as it is necessarily, because God can do anything, then knowledge is, and secondly, or thirdly, I'm sorry, <laughs> thirdly for the philosopher, knowledge is of that which is necessarily as it is. You can only know something which is necessarily as it is because on their model of knowledge, um, knowledge is knowledge of why the thing must be as it is. Yeah. If something uh, could either be the case or not be the case, it can't be known. Yeah. Uh, so, therefore, if you put those three together, then it follows that anything is possible and of any conceivable possibility, we cannot know that it is not actual. In other words, for an example, if it's possible that God could change my kids into fruits, then uh, having shut the door of my office, I don't know that they're not fruits. I don't know, actually, I can't know that they're actually in the living room watching TV right now because since it's possible that God can turn them into fruits, it may be that they're fruits. And since it may be that they're fruits, I can't know that they're not fruits because I could only know they're not fruits if it were the case that it's necessarily false that they're fruits, right? That it's impossible and I know why it's impossible. So this, I, this, this, this notion that uh, everything follows from the will of God and God can will anything, they say it follows that nothing is known, nothing can be known, right? Okay, anything is possible and of any conceivable possibility, again, we cannot know that it is not actual. So Ghazali's answer to this is to say that their conclusion, right, their, 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 their sort of absurdity or their, you know, horrible, uh, the, the horrible consequence of this only follows if the possible is such that there cannot be created for man knowledge that it doesn't exist, right, knowledge of its non-being. And then he gives us sort of two different approaches to this, and it seems like they're the same. He treats them as the same, but they seem to be different. Because the first thing he says is that God has created for us the knowledge that he did not enact these possibilities. So now he's just saying simply that when I shut the door of my office, right, even though it's possible for God to turn my kids into fruits or animals or something like that, anything is possible, actually. Uh, outside the door here since I've closed it. I don't know what's happening and God can do anything Yet he created in me the knowledge That my kids did not turn into fruits and that's how I know that they're not fruits right now So Even though God can do anything when he doesn't do the thing uh, He he creates in us knowledge that he did not do it and that's how we know that it's not the case. Then he goes on to say something different. He says the continuous habit of their occurrence repeatedly one time after another fixes unshakably in our minds the belief in their occurrence according to past habit. Now this is different and it's much like an idea associated with David Hume, a philosopher a Scottish philosopher from the 17th century. Uh, David Hume was an empiricist and he was very skeptical about the concept of natural necessity, 
That's exactly the concept that the philosopher are defending here. And he gives a similar argument that Ghazali had given earlier that we, we recall from the first, the, the earlier section here, where Ghazali said that the only evidence we have that fire is the cause of the burning of the cotton is that the cotton burns with the fire, you know, with the, with the contact of fire or when the fire contacts it. And the fact that something happens, the fact that A happens when B happens is not proof that A happens because of B. And then he gives different examples, right? The example of the blind man, for that. We could, we could think of many examples of times or, or situations where A happens when B happens and repeatedly so, but, but doesn't happen because of B. Pavlov's dog, where they ring the bell and they bring him food whenever they ring the bell. And then the dog begins to salivate after some time, uh, repeatedly hearing the bell and then experiencing the food being brought. So something like that is going on here and, and also with David Hume. So David Hume says that uh, we associate uh, things with each other when we experience them repeatedly occurring with each other. And that association leads us to identify some of those things as the causes of others or connect them or relate them as cause and effect. But empirically, in, in, in speaking, that's the from our experience and observation, we actually never experience any such thing as a causal relation, as one thing actually being the cause of another. And that's his view. So his explanation of our under, of our you know, connecting things in these causal ways, in causal terms, is that uh, our minds are kind of conditioned to associate the things that we experience together in a, in a way that we then you know, proceed to call causal, and we name some of them causes and others effects. So Ghazali seems to be doing that here. Now he says the continuous habit of their occurrence repeatedly one time after another fixes unshakably in our minds the belief in their occurrence according to past habit. Right, so uh, I've never, for example, closed my door of my office and then left my office again only to find my children have turned into fruit. That's never happened and things have never actually turned into fruits or other things suddenly in that way. So therefore, you know, that, shape, that fixes in my knowledge the belief that that will not happen. So these two don't seem to be the same kind of explanation, even though Ghazali presents them in sort of as one. He says the, the one thing right after the other. First, he gives a statement in one, God has created for us the knowledge that he did not enact these possibilities. And then he immediately says, the continuous habit of their occurrence repeatedly one time after another fixes unshakably in our minds the belief and their occurrence according to past habit. So first he said the God, says that God does it, and then after that he turns around and says the continuous habit of their repeated occurrence is what does it. And those are two different things. The second, it presupposes that our minds actually have a fixed nature because it's not possible to see how repeated occurrence of a pattern of something in experience would or could fix a belief uh, that the future will resemble the past uh, unless the mind was of such a nature that it would be affected by such repeated occurrences, right? Uh, 
So if I, for example, took a stone and I, you know, set the stone out here in this, in this, you know, uh, regular orderly universe where things happen repeatedly in the same way, um, the stone is not going to form the belief that they're going to continue to happen in the same way in the future. No, the stone isn't going to form a belief at all. But if I say now and I explain my belief that things are going to continue to happen in the future according to the pattern that they've happened in the past, by saying that our minds develop this unshakable belief because of this conditioning process, then I'm basically assuming that the mind has a nature and essence and I'm explaining uh, my belief or my, he's not explaining really, he's trying to explain the knowledge of unactualized possibilities in terms of this nature. And that seems to be the same thing that he wants to resist when he's saying that, you know, when the, when the philosophers are saying that things and, you know, actually have essences and natures and that those essences and natures account for what happens because he's now telling us that the repeated order of experience, right, or the habit of our experience is the cause of our knowledge of unactualized possibilities. And that doesn't really, it's not really consistent with the notion that God is the only cause of anything, at least on the face of it. Okay, so that means that we might say that his second hypothesis or his second explanation here is meant to be understood in that way. That's to say that Really, God is the one who creates the knowledge for us, but so that we have to say that our unshakable belief, as he calls it, our knowledge of unactualized possibilities gets fixed on our minds with the repeated empirical pattern that we experience and not because of it, right? So that that relation or connection between the pattern of our experience and the beliefs that get conditioned in our mind are actually uh, not a causal relation, but again, just a, a matter of con conjunction, constant conjunction or correlation uh, with instead of by, as Ghazali puts it. Anyway, a lot of things to ask about there. <clears throat> so continuing on with this question about how it's possible to have knowledge of unactualized possibilities. He goes on, he gives a kind of a, is sort of miraculous uh, sort of explanation. Yeah. And that explanation is derivative from or taken from uh, something the philosopher themselves uh, hold, as you will see. And he's trying to now say that according to what they themselves hold, these things should not be impossible. So he says, indeed, it is possible for one of the prophets to know through the ways they have mentioned, he's talking about the philosopher, uh, that a certain individual will not arrive from his journey tomorrow when his arrival is possible. The prophet knowing, however, the occurrence of this possible thing. So basically the idea here is that prophets can know the future and the philosopher, I, I mean, Ibn Sina, uh, at least has acknowledged that prophets can know the future and he's actually given a philosophical explanation of how this is possible. But these future occurrences are actually, in fact, unactualized possibilities. So 
the uh, the argument here is that since Sibbinson has already acknowledged that uh, prophets can know uh, unactualized possibilities, right, things that are not going to happen in the future, then there's no reason to deny that knowledge of that as possible. Yeah. And one of the things that we have to also see here is that an issue that's underlying this is whether there are such a thing as unactualized possibilities. Because as we saw, Ibn Sina believes that everything proceeds necessarily from God. And uh, for other reasons that we probably need to discuss and that we will discuss shortly, he believes that everything that happens, happens necessarily. So anything that actually does exist, exists necessarily not by itself, because God is the only one who exists necessarily uh, through himself, but exists necessarily through something else. So uh, nothing can exist unless it's brought into being by some other cause. And to cause something is to make it necessary. If it were still possible for it not to exist, even in with the existence of its cause, then that wouldn't really be its cause. It would be maybe just a part of the cause. So for Ibn Sina, everything uh, that it does exist and that is the case is necessarily so, one way or another. Yet, yet we have it here that, that the Prophet can know what will occur in the future and what will not occur in the future, where those things are, are possibilities. So there seems to be some tension or Ghazali is sort of pointing to a possible contradiction here as to whether the um, philosopher actually acknowledge po uh, unactualized possibilities or not. And we'll see soon his argument that they in fact do in spite of themselves. So what are these ways, right, that they mentioned? One is the imaginative faculty and the other is the rational faculty and the third is the practical faculty. All three of these are faculties of the soul. The rational faculty is the, the faculty of the soul that allows somebody to grasp intellectuals, intelligibles, I'm sorry, intellectually grasp the intelligibles. The imaginative faculty is the faculty that allows a person or the, the power in the soul to envision sometimes metaphors for abstract concepts that uh, can be grasped intellectually. And also just to envision, right, what, uh, or to imagine, let's say, right, what, conjure images of what, what is not in front of one. The practical faculty is the one that it consists of, you know, desire and repulsion, right, and will, right, that moves the animal and, and puts the animal into motion, including the human being. So, uh, in the case of the imaginative faculty, this is the faculty for Ibn Sina, which is responsible for, or the seat, let's say, of this prophetic miracle of, of seeing the future. Because the future consists of particular events, and particulars are uh, objects of the senses, right? They're the sensible things, the things that we can experience. Uh, and as opposed to the intelligibles, which are universal, and uh, we don't experience, but we only, you know, uh, grasp through the rational faculty. So that means that knowledge of future events is knowledge of particulars, which means that that kind of knowledge will not be grasped through the rational faculty since the rational faculty grasps the universals. So it's grasped through the imagination, 
And so in the Prophet for Ibn Sina, the seat of this miraculous ability is the Prophet's imagination, which becomes strengthened by by God, right? So as Ibn Sina, I mean, as Ghazali puts it in his explanation, uh, and this actually he draws from Ibn Sina's Al-Ishirat Wal-Tanbihat, for they maintain that once it becomes dominant and strong, that's the imagination, and does not become absorbed in the senses in preoccupation with them, it sees the preserved tablet, the forms of future particular events becoming imprinted on it. This happens to prophets in their waking hours and to the rest of the people in their sleep. So the idea here is that you know, on the preserved tablet, this is going to be God's knowledge of everything, but for Ibn Sina, God's knowledge is of only universals. So somehow these universals um, take on a kind of a particular material form in the imagination, much like what happens when we um, uh, sort of coin a metaphor or a, a, a symbol for something which is abstract, right? And we, 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 we sort, of, sort of see it in a form in our minds, like knowledge is presented or expressed as light, you know, for example. So something like that's going on here. The idea is that in the prophet, his imagination becomes strong. And since the prophet is not absorbed in the world of experience, but the spiritual world, he's able to see the, right, the preserved tablet, the lahmafuz, and the forms of particular events uh, that follow from that become imprinted on his imagination. And this, happen this happens to prophets in their waking hours and to the rest of the people in their sleep, right? And this is this has been Sin's way of also explaining how the phenomena of people having dreams that later become true, like true dreams, because in your sleep, your imagination is disconnected from your senses, and therefore it's open to receiving information, right, and images from other sources, right? And that's how we can sometimes uh, dream of events that come to pass. So. There is already a kind of a miracle that Ibn Sina acknowledges and Ghazali is here saying, hey, you actually um, accept this that happens as part of your own explanation. So how can you now deny knowledge of unactualized possibilities if you are actually, um, you know, uh, accepting the possibility of a miraculous form of the same kind of knowledge? So then he goes to the normal kinds of examples. He says, no, this is just as when one looks at a common man and knows that he neither knows the unseen in any manner whatsoever, the ghaib, which is again like this lah mafuz, nor apprehends the intelligibles without instruction. Somebody who hasn't been to a philosophy school and uh, taken the logic class, or supposedly, according to the idea here, uh, is not going to be able to apprehend the intelligibles without instruction, unless he's, or if he's really smart, you know, naturally intelligent. He could, without, you know, uh, taking logic and critical thinking class. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is that, he, you know, somebody, you know, looks at a certain common person, like a peasant or a farmer, and he will know, despite how the person's acting and talking, that the person is not capable of understanding these things. And yet, with all that, one does not deny that his soul and his intuition may become stronger so as to apprehend what the prophets apprehend in accordance with what the philosophers acknowledge. 
although they know that such a possibility has not taken place. Basically, the idea is there that the philosopher claim and explain the prophetic miracles, in this case, the, um, the uh, ability of the prophet to see the future, they explain it in terms of potentialities of the soul, right? Because they say now that the soul has these faculties, and one of them is the imagination, and the imagination has the, you know, has the potential to to perform a certain kind of thing, right? Which is to to image or sort of envision particular things that are not in front of the senses. Now, since it has this potential, it can have it in greater degrees, and when it becomes more powerful, then a prophet can actually uh, see the future, future particulars. And that really means that there are and other people who also have a human soul that unactualized possibility. If it's the case that this is explained in terms of potentiality of the human soul, which is strengthened by God in the case of the prophet, that means that in other human beings who also have a human soul and who also have that faculty of imagination, that that potentiality, that's a possibility that's there, but which is unactualized. And that by looking at the person, we can know that that's a possibility which is unactualized. So from that, it follows that there are unactualized possibilities, uh, as opposed to what Ibn Sina claims otherwise, that there are no such things as unactualized possibilities because he claims that everything that occurs is necessary and anything that doesn't happen, it's because that thing is impossible since its causes have not brought into existence or realized. Uh, and the second thing is that, that this proves for Ghazali is that we can know According to Ibnson's own explanation, right, of this, of the human soul, we can actually know that uh, these unactualized possibilities, the non-occurrence of the unactualized possibility can be known, in other words. Whereas the fall, uh, because of the fact that, again, the philosophy claimed to know that most people's souls are not so empowered. I mean, that follows from their idea of philosophy. They believe that the human being, the human soul, is capable of philosophical understanding, they even believe that the human soul's purpose is to reach that uh, philosophical understanding. But they also believe that most people don't actually reach that. So they both can see that there are unactualized possibilities and that these unactualized possibilities can be known not to have occurred. And that was just their problem here with the idea that since God can do everything, right, or, or on following from Ghazali's claim that God can do anything, that anything is possible, then how could we know that many of these possibilities aren't actually occurring? How do I know that my kids are not turning into fruits outside my office right now? Uh, because God can do anything. And Ghazali's answer is, well, you know, you're basically asking how we can know uh, that unactualized possibilities are not realized. And we, we know that, that the fact that we can actually know that is already conceded by you in your theory. So it's not the case that everything needs to be understood as uh, happening of necessity, so as to deny God's will in order to underwrite the possibility of our knowledge of those things. Okay. So then Ghazali goes on and says, um, If then God disrupts the habitual course of nature by making the miracle occur at the time in which disruptions of habitual events take place, these cognitions, right, this knowledge of, that they did not occur, 
slip away from people's hearts and God does not create them. So when God makes the unusual thing happen, right? If God, for example, now is going to uh, make my children turn into fruit, he will create the knowledge in me that they have turned into fruit, right? <laughs> if that was the miracle and he wants to do that as a miracle, uh, because the purpose of the miracle, of course, is to always prove the prophethood of the prophet. So the idea here is that the miracle would not, God would not uh, do something unusual without serving that purpose. And so it would be necessary to create knowledge and the people who are the witnesses of that miracle. Otherwise, the, the, the miracle would have no point. People would know that it occurred. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's no causal connection between our knowledge and the object. So it's kind of as if I know now I, I go outside my door my kids have turned into fruit because God wants to, you know, tell me something, right? And uh, I, I, you know, when I go out and look, God is the one who produces the knowledge that they're fruit, and it's not the fact that they're fruits. You know, it's not because there are fruits sitting there on the sofa in front of the TV, and that causes me to know that they were turned into fruit. So, right, the, the causal connection, God causes them to turn into fruit, and he causes me to know that's the case. But there's no causal connection between that fact and my knowledge because, again, nothing causes anything but God. Uh, so that raises the question, what is actually the relation between our knowledge and the object of knowledge? When I know something, then that seems to entail some relation between me uh, or my knowledge in that thing. And it's not the thing that causes my knowledge of the thing because God is the only cause. So therefore, it's not a causal relation. And so then what is the relation, right? What is the relation? What is the relation between my knowledge and the thing known that makes it knowledge of that known thing? That's the question I think Kozali would need to answer here. There is therefore nothing to prevent the thing being possible, though, he says, within the capabilities of God, but that by his prior knowledge he knew that he would not do it at certain times, despite its possibility, and that he create for us the knowledge that he will not create it at that time. Hence, in all this talk of theirs, there is nothing but sheer vilification. So he's basically saying that they're making an unfair criticism uh, because of the fact that, according to what he's saying, uh, God can sort of intervene not only to change the the, the course of events from their natural order, right, or from their sort of usual pattern, but he can also intervene in our knowledge to make sure that our knowledge of, you know, what he does matches what he does. So the possibility of knowledge of things around us is not sacrificed or compromised by God's ability to do anything according to this explanation. Uh, because this is where it sort of gets interesting, Ghazali now gets gives a second approach, what he calls a second approach. So he, before he saw that he's, he had it that, you know, basically God creates uh, in us the knowledge that strange and, and, and amazing things are not going to happen it, until the time that he wants it to happen and then he creates us gives us the knowledge that they do happen this is again a way to try to 
let's say, deny the notion that there are essences and things, right, that make things naturally follow uh, necessarily, you know, a certain course, and at the same time, uh, preserve the, the possibility of, of, of knowledge of nature. Uh, so anything can happen, and yet we can still know about nature. That's, the, that's, that's basically what he wants to show. But it does sort of, again, raise this question about what knowledge is. Because for the philosopher, and I think intuitively, knowledge is a kind of a, a correspondence between what we think, you know what I mean, about the world and the way the world is, right? There's a relation between our knowledge of something and the object of that knowledge. And this approach kind of severs that relation or it severs the way we ordinarily think of that relation and raises the question of what that relation actually you now is. So the way to put it is like that. What if, for example, I were to ask Ghazali, can God turn my children into fruits outside my office and at the same time create in me the knowledge that they are not fruits? If we say yes, then we would have to say that God can create in me knowledge that my kids are not fruits, even if the fact is that they are fruits. And then that would seem to, you know, that would basically raise the question, well, what does it mean to be knowledge then? Where we don't seem to be talking about knowledge anymore, right? Because knowledge requires there to be some relation between you know, the knowledge and the object of knowledge. And if there's no relation at all, then what is knowledge in the first place? Yeah. If it's the case that my knowing that they're not fruits depends on that actual fact of they're not being fruits, then it seems like there has to be some kind of causal relation between what they are and my knowledge. And that's a causal relation between two things, uh, which one of, neither of which is God, right? So that seems to... Uh, negate this notion that God is the only cause of everything. So Ghazali has now the second approach, which perhaps he thinks it's better because it makes more sense than the first one. Why does he give two different possible answers to one problem that the philosopher bring? People have uh, differed in their opinion on that, and some of them think that Ghazali's true position or true opinion is the second approach that we're going to talk about here. Other people claim, no, his true position is the first approach, which is, in fact, the uh, traditional sort of Asherite uh, approach to the, to the problem. And that he's only, and, and they claim that Ghazali is only offering the second approach as a kind of a, for the sake of argument. Yeah? And some of that disagreement has centered around the correct way to interpret or translate these terms, Tashna'at and Nusallam. So if we translate it straightforwardly as it is here, as Michael Marmura translates it, the second approach with which there's deliverance from these vilifications is for us to admit, and it seems like, you know, from that, that maybe, no, I'm sorry, I don't think this is Michael Marmora's translation, but a different one. But in any case, it looks, this makes it look like he is basically conceding to the second approach, like the only way that we can save ourselves from this absurd consequence that they say uh, will follow is if we take the second approach, since it's, it's like the word is translated here as admit. But others have argued that Anusalam means here something closer to sort of 
adopt for the sake of argument. So in that case, the idea would be that, you know, even if we concede to them that things have natures, right? So we admit that, as he says, fire is created in such a way that if two similar pieces of cotton come in contact with it, it would burn both, making no distinction between them if they are similar in all respects. So that seems to concede that things have essential natures, such that individuals with the same nature necessarily behave similarly under similar conditions. However, this behavior can be disrupted by a nature in the quality, I'm sorry, disrupted by a change in the quality of an individual, which does not compromise its essential nature. So the example he gives is if somebody puts talc all over his body, right? Or some kind of fireproofing material over his body and then sits in a fire, that person won't burn. And he and you know, and so that that that, that doesn't mean that the fire has to change its nature or that the person's flesh has to change its nature, but something accidental or peripheral to the essence of either fire or flesh is sort of put in there to intervene between the two, and then the person doesn't burn. And he goes on to then, you know, uh, account uh, that people actually have done that, right? People cover their body with talc, sits in a fiery furnace, and then they're not burned by the fire. And anybody, he says, who heard about it without seeing it would not believe it. But as a matter of fact, there is this stuff, talc, which has this quality that it stops flesh from burning. And, you know, just because we haven't witnessed that before doesn't mean that it's impossible. So it could be that when a miracle happens, God can make something like this occur. So that neither the flesh, you know, none of the essences of things has to be altered and still a miracle can happen. Denying that God has the power to create qualities in things that alter their normal behavior without changing their intrinsic natures is the same as denying, for example, that somebody could be, you know, uh, covered with the fireproof uh, material and be in a fire and not burn. Well, that's possible because we know there's a such thing as fire, fireproof material and that, that does stop flesh from burning. It doesn't change flesh into something other than flesh and it doesn't change fire into something anything other than a fire. So he says, among the objects lying within God's power, there are strange and wondrous things, not all of which we have seen. Why then should we deny their possibility and judge them to be impossible? So the idea here is that, okay, grant them that there are <clears throat> things have their necessary natures, uh, but there are many things in the world and, and, and these things have all kinds of different natures and all kinds of different powers, right? So for example, talc has the power to prevent something from burning when it's covering the thing. Um, so given that that's the case, you know, and, and given the fact that we're, it's not possible for us to know by experience, you know, that uh, the limit of things out there, there's, you know, uh, it follows that there's no reason for us to deny the possibility of God being able to do any of these things uh, on the basis of the fact that things have necessary natures. When we have no way to have, we, we don't have complete knowledge of the necessary natures of things and, and there's no possible way we could have. And this turns on a problem we now call the problem of induction, which is just 
the problem of the fact that uh, by experience and observation, there's no way to know that something is absolutely impossible or uh, absolutely necessary simply because uh, there, our experience is limited and the fact that we've never experienced something occurring could never be enough, uh, could never be evidence that it cannot ever occur. And the fact that we've always ever experienced something occurring in a certain way can never actually amount to proof that it must only occur in that way uh, ever. And simply because of the fact that no matter what range of experience we're drawing from, we're drawing from a finite range of experience. There could always be something lying beyond that experience, which we've never experienced before, but which nonetheless exists and which has the ability to totally change the equation. Like in the case of talc, if somebody has never uh, seen talc before or heard of it, right? They wouldn't believe that a person could sit in a fire and not be burned. But here we have a substance which, you know, they can find out about uh, that exists and which has the power to stop somebody from being burned if they sit in a fire. And so that means that within the natural and necessary natures of things, there are, well, let's see, for our, our purposes anyway, potentially infinite range of ways in which God could make things come about uh, very different from what we've ever experienced. And yet within the framework of the nature of things that exists, but which is uh, nonetheless unknown to us. That's the idea here. <laughs>